This week, we come to a very interesting part of the Bible, the Ezekiel 38-39, the Magog battle. And I'll take a couple of weeks to get through this. It's fascinating. And there's lots of talk about this at the moment because, as we'll see more next week, how the current day events are fitting into what the Bible predicted would happen. But first of all, we'll just explain it today, the, the basics of it, and then we'll look at how it's fitting into the world today and how it's, it's becoming more and more likely to happen soon. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. And this prophecy is so detailed, it's so specific that, Lord, we know what's going to happen. And you declare a couple of times in these chapters that I'm the Lord and I declare this will happen. And I'm going to do this, so when it does happen, you're going to know that I'm God. And I just thank you that we can have the assurance that you have told us the end from the beginning. You've told us things that will happen in the future before they happen, so we know that you are in control, that you are God, and that your plan will stand. So we thank you for all these things. Give us understanding by your Holy Spirit. Teach us through your Holy Spirit and your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's do a memory verse. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So we want to just cover the first part. So that would be Ezekiel 38 verse 1 through to chapter 39 verse 8. And this is where Russia and her allies attack Israel in their latter days. So basically, maybe in our lifetime. You know, we're living in the latter days. Israel has been brought back. It's time for Jesus to come back. That's why it's so exciting to live in these days. So we've been learning about Israel and what's happening to them in the past and what's going to happen to them once Jesus comes back. But now we're coming to an event which is going to happen before the tribulation, I believe. And we don't know if it's before or after the rapture, because the rapture is also before the tribulation, so we may or may not be here to see this. It's at the same time as the rapture, the same kind of time frame as the rapture, sometime before the seven-year tribulation. And so God is going to reveal himself in this really dramatic and miraculous way. Like, remember... As you read the Exodus account and the Ten Plagues, God did that to show himself to the nations and to the people of Israel that he is the true God. And so he's going to do the same thing. He's going to do plagues, and you'll see what happens as we go through. And he's going to show himself to the whole world in a very obvious way that this could only be God. A summary of Ezekiel 38 and 39 by Feinberg says, They tell, if interpreted literally, of a coming northern confederacy of nations about the Black and Caspian Seas with Persia and North Africa who will invade the Promised Land after Israel's restoration to it. And that's from David Guzik's commentary. And basically, Ezekiel 38-39 describes the occasion in which God directly and supernaturally intervenes to thwart the ill-fated invasion of Israel by Magog and its allies. So that's Russia and 
her allies. And in the scriptures, it's Persia, Kush, Foot, Libya, Goma, Togoma, Meshach, and Tubal. And we'll explain where those places are current day um, right now. So we're going to, before we read the scripture, identify who these places are. Now, it's a bit complicated because they're old names. Like this was written, you know, 500, 600 BC. And names change over time and so i've just kind of simplified it for you if you want to dig into it yourself go for it check out what i'm saying but gog just means a prince a leader a ruler and the prince of rosh could just mean chief prince so rosh may not be a place and if it is a place then it's difficult to identify that place in the scriptures so most people just say Gog, Prince of Rush, is the chief prince of the land of Magog. So it's Gog of the land of Magog. So the land of Magog is in the north, the far north, it says in the Bible. And if you trace back and look at history and Josephus and other historians, Magog is connected to the Scythians, and they're a people group who have settled in what is now modern-day Russia. And he's going to be the overall leader of this confederacy of nations. So Magog is Russia, and it's linked to the Scythians. They are the original ancestors of the Russians. Meshach, Tubal, they people groups who settled in Turkey. Persia, as you probably know, is Iran. Now, the word translated Ethiopia in the Bible is literally Kush, and that's people or nations from the area of Egypt and Sudan. That's Eastern Africa. And then you got the word Libya, and that is literally put, or fut, P-H-U-T, and that's people or nations from North Africa, and that's basically, as Chuck Missler has researched, it's Libya, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and, and Mauritania. And Goma, uh, most likely Turkey, but it could be Germany as well. Togoma, another people group that settled in Turkey. Sheba and Dedan are Arab people, most likely Saudi Arabia, that kind of location, and Tarshish, Spain or Sardina. So these are not your traditional enemies of Israel. If you look through the scriptures and see who Israel has been fighting against for centuries, they have not been fighting against these people. These are not the traditional enemies of Israel. Normally it's the Arab nations that they're fighting against, or Babylon and you know, Assyria and Egypt and places like that. But this is different, very different. So there's a new threat coming from new enemies with a different motivation. And the motivation is money, financial gain. So if you turn the page, you can see where these people groups settled and where they're going to come from. They're all going to attack Israel at the same time as we read, you'll find this. So I'm just giving a summary, so as you go, it'll make more sense. We're going to read the whole passage. So basically, they're coming from the north, east, west, and south. It's a basically from every direction. It's this massive confederacy of armies from all these different countries and places, all at the same time, to overwhelm tiny Israel. And underneath that, map which I got from Chuck Misler's study is a world map so you can see what countries they correspond to. 
where those people groups actually finished up, what countries they finished up in. So let's read, eh? Let's read the prophecy. So we're going to read Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 so you get the full picture. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog. Maybe that's Russia. The prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Goma and all its troops, and the house of Togoma from the far north, and all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited, in the latter years. You will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. So just pause there. This can only happen once Israel is back in the land. Guess what? Israel is back in the land. So the first criteria for this battle is Israel in the land. It's happened. Not just from Babylon, but from all the nations. You will ascend, verse 9, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against the people, again God repeating himself here, and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all the young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? You can imagine the news. A war happens and people go, Country go, Oh, you shouldn't do that. They don't do anything about it, you know what I mean? Therefore, verse 14, Son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, and that geographically is Russia, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. You imagine lots of planes and helicopters and stuff, you know, you can kind of picture that. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land, so the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. That's the purpose of this, just like it was back in Egypt. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Verse 18. And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. 
for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. So this is now in Israel. They're all in Israel. Every man's sword will be against his brother. So they're going to turn against each other. All these nations can't even fight Israel. They're going to start fighting themselves. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. So you see, this is going to be something that's going to be quite unique. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 39 And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bring you up from the far north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Now this is a rehashing of what's happened already in chapter 38, and it gives us a bit of extra insight into what's happening. Verse 3, Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand, and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and all the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog. Remember, they came to destroy Israel. Now God's going to destroy their land. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Now verse 9, this is now the aftermath of the battle. The battle's finished. Israel didn't have to fight. God defeated the enemies through those various means. We'll talk about more in a minute. And now this is what happens after the battle. Verse 9, Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and bucklers, the bows and arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they'll make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest, because they will make fires with the weapons, and they will plunder those who plunder them and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord God. And this next section is how they have to bury all those, probably millions of soldiers, who died in the land of Israel. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travellers, because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude, that is, all the army. Therefore they will call it the valley of Hamon Gog, the multitude of Gog. 
For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them. It's a lot of people to bury if it's going to take seven months in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. The name of the city shall also be Hamona. Thus they shall cleanse the land. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field. So this is now going back to the time of the battle. There's going to be so many people dead that God is inviting all the birds and the beasts to come and pick their bones, basically. Assemble yourselves and come. Gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you, a great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls. Order them, fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. Maybe he's talking to the animals. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men and with all the men of war, says the Lord God. Verse 21, I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed. Notice that. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, their sin, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to the transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. And they will have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of the enemy's lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back into their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. So, Importantly, the timing here, you have the regathering of the nation and you have, as we've been learning about, the spiritual restoration of the nation. But in between is this battle and this is where God gets their attention, basically. So let's go back to verse 1 in chapter 38. Russia and her allies will attack Israel. So let's read verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So we just talked about when this is going to happen. It's going to happen sometime between Israel being regathered and their spiritual restoration. And I believe 
and most people do, that it will happen sometime just before the tribulation starts. Whether it's before or after the rapture, we don't know, because the rapture also happens before the tribulation starts. God takes out his church. The tribulation is where God deals with Israel. So this is where God gets Israel's attention. The focus goes away from the church, and it goes to Israel. God is going to work with Israel for the seven years. In verse 2 it says, Set your face against Gog on the land of Magog. So remember, Gog is the ruler of the land of Magog. And most commentators agree it corresponds to modern-day Russia. It's really the only place it can be. It's the far north. If you look on a map, it has to be Russia. If you stand in Israel and look north, if you go far enough, you get to Russia. And it says in um, Ezekiel 38.15, Then you will come from your place out of the far north. So, And as we spoke about before, the Scythians are the ancestors of the Russians. And they settled in Russia, according to the historians. And a quote here from Alexander. At Magog, a descendant of Japheth, Genesis 10 verse 2, in the table of nations is identified by Josephus in his antiquities as the land of the Scythians, a mountainous regions around the Black and Caspian Seas. And if you go north, that's Russia. This position is generally accepted. So, Verse 2. The prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. And most commentators believe the prince of Rosh is best translated, as it is in the King James Version, as chief prince. Again, it's really hard to identify Rosh with any particular country or people group. It doesn't fit, so it's probably just a title. And David Guzik says, the phrase prince of Rosh has been translated as chief prince with the idea that the word Rosh describes the greatness of the prince, not a place where the prince rules, Rosh. Translators and interpreters do not agree if it should be Prince of Rosh or Chief Prince. So you can take your choice. One of those things we were not sure. Now, Meshik and Tubal are people groups that settled in the area of modern-day Turkey. Okay, verses 4 through 6. God will cause Russia and her allies to attack Israel. So it says, I will turn you around and put hooks into your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Goma and all its troops, the house of Togoma from the far north and all its troops. Many people are with you. So in verse 4 it says, I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws and lead you out. Now, Proverbs 12.1, it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. So. God does with the nations what he wants. The leaders of the nations think they're in control. They're delusional. God is having his way. He's setting everything up just as he wants it. Now, yes, God is sovereign, but no, he won't go against the free will of any man. And this is like a mystery. It's an apparent contradiction, this sovereignty of God and the free will of man. One way of understanding this is that their reasons for doing things are very different for God's reasons of doing things. You take Joseph, for example. Let's go back to Joseph and his brothers. Remember that situation? God allowed Joseph's brothers to hate Joseph. And eventually, he got sent to Egypt as a slave. They had their reasons that was out of jealousy and hatred. But God's reasons were to send him ahead so he could save the nation of Israel. 
So man's idea and God's idea were actually the same, but for different motivations. God sent Joseph there to save many people alive, as Joseph said. We'll read that a bit later. So Gog, this leader of Russia, has this idea that I can get material gain. He's greedy. Okay. Now today, Israel has many natural resources to offer. And it's only been in fairly recent years that they've discovered the oil and gas in Israel. And they're exporting more and more. And they've signed a contract with Europe to sell natural gas there, for example. That's a very lucrative contract. When they start doing that, other countries will miss out on those deals and Israel is going to become very rich. They already are quite rich. So we're heading into a time in history where the situation is, or the circumstances are just right for these things to happen. And verse 4, it says, With all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company of bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So this is, in Ezekiel's day, a way of explaining a well-equipped, well-prepared and very fast-moving and mobile army. So they did have words for tanks and helicopters and jet planes, you know, all that kind of stuff. So this is a picture of a fast-moving, well-equipped army. And a quote from Morgan. Here the prophet saw the final manifestation of antagonism to Jehovah and his people. He saw it gathering itself in terrific force, the mightiest alliance that had ever acted against Israel. And Block says, These verses create the impression that Gog is an imperial power with vast military resources. Again, Russia fits that description. Feinberg says, some have found great difficulty in the references to armour, buckler, shield, sword and helmet. But even in our day of advanced weapons of warfare, it is interesting to learn that in some parts of the world, conflict is going on with primitive weapons. And how else could an ancient writer have described warfare? He knew nothing of planes and guns. It is our concern only to understand what the common sense interpretation of the passage indicates. So basically, you've got a big army, well equipped, fast moving. Now verse 5. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them. Okay, so the map shows where they are. Israel is going to be attacked from all directions. Gog from the north, Persia from the west, Ethiopia from the south, Libya from the east. Goma and all its troops, the house of Togoma from the far north, and a quote from David Guzik, most regard Goma as the people from Cappadocia in modern-day Turkey. The house of Togoma is often regarded as the Armenian people to the north of Israel. And verses 4 to 6, with all your army, all of them, and all its troops, and all its troops, many people are with you. So it keeps on repeating, all, all, all. There's no holding back here. Every nation which is participating in this war is putting everything into it. It's not like, okay, we'll put a few of our soldiers. No, they're putting the whole army, the whole navy, the whole air force into this battle. There's no holding back. This is it. When you think about how many times people have tried to destroy Israel so far, and they've always been defeated, well, they're going to do their very best once more. All right, verses 7 through 9. Israel is now invaded by Gog and his allies, that's Russia, and their allies. And it says, God says to them, Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years, 
you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. So, verse 7, prepare yourself and be ready. If you're going to come and you know, organize this major battle, it's going to take a lot of preparation. You've got to secretly coordinate armies, navies, and air forces of all these different countries, and it's going to take a bit of preparation. So God is saying, you better get ready. Verse 8, after many days, in the latter years, you will come into the land of those gathered from many peoples on the mountains of Israel that were brought out of the nations. So this is today. It's only in modern times that this has happened. It's only now that this battle can possibly take place. Verse 8, it says, Now all of them dwell safely. So this has been a confusing aspect of this prophecy. It's hard to imagine Israel dwelling safely until the agreement with the Antichrist in the tribulation. But there's all kinds of possible scenarios. And a current one is that Iran will attack Israel with her proxy armies, you know, Hezbollah, Lebanon, the militants in Syria and Iraq and Hamas from Gaza and the Houthis and Yemen. But they'll be defeated. God won't allow Israel to be defeated. So those proxies, those proxy armies will be defeated. And that will leave Israel with no immediate threat on her borders. And that would be a time of relative safety. And that could be the time. So I don't know. And we don't know how this will come about, where they will dwell safely. But it will happen. Verse 9, you will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. So this speaks of the immense scale and destructive power of this well-planned attack. This will have to be the biggest surprise attack in history. So humanly speaking, there's no hope for the tiny Israel. But that's why God allows it. That's why God is orchestrating this. It's going to be clear that this was a miraculous victory. And all Israel has to do, Israel's participation in this battle, is to bury the dead. It's pretty good, eh? Seven months burying the dead. There's going to be so many corpses. Come to verses 10 through 13. It's Gog's evil plan. Thus says the Lord God, On that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. See, God's got a good plan, but Gog's is evil. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. I mean, they're not expecting to be attacked. To take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. So they've acquired livestock and goods. They've become rich, and that's true for Israel now. And they're getting richer as time goes on, as they discover more oil and gas and things like that. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, and all the young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? This is like the news headline on Sunday's paper, you know. This is what the nations will be saying, you know. Have you? Come take plunder? Are you doing this to make yourself rich? So this is like, yeah, reading the newspaper before it's written, you know? 
You will make an evil plan. Verse 10. Although this battle is a part of God's prophetic plan for the ages, from a human perspective, it is also man's idea. God is not forcing these nations to go and destroy Israel against their will. And we know that nations have been trying to destroy Israel for a long time. So there's nothing new. Verse 11. I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely. So the first evil thought Gog has against Israel was to attack them after they've returned to the land when they're living in time of peace and not expecting a military conflict. So it's taking people by surprise. Very unfair. Verse 12, to take plunder and to take booty. And now here's the human motivation, the evil motivation for the conquest. It's greed. So Gog, the leader, and the other countries are thinking this should be an easy battle. We're vastly outnumbering them, outgunning them. They've got all these natural resources. Yeah, it's worth the risk. Let's do it. In the midst of the land, this is interesting. Feinberg says, An interesting phrase is employed to define the place where God's people will be dwelling. It is called the middle, literally the navel of the earth as explained in Ezekiel 5 verse 5. The land of Israel is in the center of the earth as far as God's purposes for the world are concerned. So not literally the center of the earth, but on the surface of the earth, everything focuses on, centers around Israel because it's God's land. And verse 13, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish. There's no loyalty in the world towards Israel. No one is going to come to her defense. No one. Instead, they will seek to share in the spoils of this one-sided war. And Feinberg says, The young lions of Tarshish are taken to mean either strong leaders and princes or greedy rulers of those commercial communities. And verses 14 through 17, God's sovereignty and God's glory. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, Will you not know it? Well, of course, yes, you will. Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you before their eyes or made holy. That's what hallowed means, to make holy. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, you are. People say, well, this is the newspaper written two and a half thousand years ago. Ezekiel 38, 39. You know? Verse 15. You will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you. So at the appointed time, Gog and those allied with him would come against Israel. And all the riding horses, a great company. David Guzik says, Ezekiel described the attack with the only images of swift military attack that made sense to Ezekiel, the people of his day, and most of human history. They become like a cloud, a massive and unstoppable storm. So put yourselves in their shoes. How are you going to describe this battle, you know? Using words that they understood. 
And verse 16, it will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land. So another clear sign that this prophecy is for the very last days of human history under human government before Jesus comes back. So it should cause us to wake up and to look up as we observe more and more pieces of this prophetic puzzle coming into place. So this is one of the last things that's going to happen before the tribulation happens, and then Jesus comes back. And this battle, the players are all kind of lining up, the chess pieces are all getting in the right spot on the board, so to speak. Verse 16, So that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. So, now I want to come back and talk about Joseph again. Man has his plans, but God has his own plans. Joseph said to his treacherous brothers, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Genesis 50 verse 20. And the New Testament equivalent to this is Romans 8.28. Paul wrote, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So everything is working for a good purpose from God's perspective. So we can be living in this world and people can be treating us very unkindly. They have an evil motive for that. But God's in control and he has a good motive. And so he's in control and so it's actually working for our good even though the people who he's allowing to do things to hurt us sometimes, remember they have free will, they can choose to hurt or to love. God will override that and work it out for our good. God's motive for us is always good. So in a similar way, Gog has his own evil motivation or reason for attacking Israel, that is economic gain. But God has a good reason for allowing it to happen. He says, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. God wants people to know him, to come into a relationship with him. God wants mankind to glorify him, to recognize his power and his faithful care for Israel and therefore seek him. Remember we read last week that God desires them to call him Father. He wants us to be in relationship with him. That's his motive. That's why he's doing this that the nations may know that I am God, that they may know me, have relationship with me. Verse 17, You of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days I would bring you against them. So again, everything is going to happen exactly as it is written. God will prove to everyone that this is his doing and that he is in control and not man, (laughs) even though we think we are, right? If you ask the leaders of those nations, who's in control? They're going to say, we are. You know, this is our plan. No, it's not your plan. Well, it is, but it's not. Overall, it's God's plan. You're just fitting into what God wants. (laughs) And they'll still be judged for doing those bad things, even though it's what God wants them to do, because they did it with their own free will and with evil intent. Now, we come to how God will defeat Gog and the other armies, verses 18 through 23. So the first one is by an earthquake. So verses 18 through 20. And it will come to pass at the same time, Gog, 
comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. So verse 18 it says, Gog comes against the land of Israel. My fury will show in my face. Feinberg, he explains what this means really well. The reaction to the audacity and effrontery of the invasion of Gog and his forces was stated in bold terms and of anthropomorphism. And you can see Psalm 18 verse 8. The picture is of the breath which an angered man inhales and exhales through his nose. So that's the Hebrew language. God's patience would be exhausted with the repeated attempts of Israel's enemies to annihilate her. This is it. God's had enough. He's going to wipe them out completely. He's going to pull out all the guns. (laughs) We're going to see. Verse 19. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. So this is going to be limited to the the land of Israel and the mountains of Israel. And it seems that only the attacking armies will be hurt. It says later that the Israelites will come out of their cities. So they've kind of retreated to the cities. And the armies are in the land heading towards the cities, but they never make it to the cities. So God allows these armies to think they're going to have victory. They get so close. I mean, Israel's not a big land. It's only, what, 100 kilometers across and 400 kilometers from top to bottom or something like that. It's not much. It doesn't take long to drive it. And so they've covered the land like a swarm of locusts, and it seems like it's only the very last moment that God intervenes and destroys them. And so they're probably thinking, oh, a couple of hours, we'll have wiped them all out, we'll have the victory. No. God intervenes and he turns the tide completely. So verse 20, All men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. This earthquake would be so specific in location, so severe and so destructive that all people would know that it was from God, not just a natural disaster. And verse 21, this is the second method or you know weapon that God uses to fight the enemy. God causes the invading armies to fight each other. So he says, I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. So God's done this before in many battles where Israel was hopelessly outnumbered. Remember Gideon, what do they do? The Midianites, they ran away and they started killing each other. And here, the example of God is from Second Chronicles chapter 20, 1 through 30. There's three nations and they come against the southern kingdom of Judah. Jehoshaphat is the king. And God says, you don't have to fight this battle. I'll fight it for you. And he caused them to be confused and to start fighting themselves, and there was not one man escaped. And the result was all the surrounding nations feared God when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. I'll come back to that in a minute. Now the third way that God deals with the enemy is with plague or disease, and great hailstones, flooding rain, fire and brimstone. 
So it says in verse 22, And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops. Notice it says, on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire and brimstone. So it's not on the people of Israel, it's only on the enemy. So if the super destructive earthquake wasn't enough, what does God do? He pulls out every historical weapon in his arsenal. Right? Russia and her allies will have no hope when they come to face the wrath of the Almighty God. So, you know, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with just fire and brimstone. He overthrew the old world with just a flood. He overthrew the Ammonites with just hailstones. But in this battle, God's going to pull them all together. <laughs> you know, fire and brimstone, hailstones, flooding rain, earthquake. You know, it's just like the consummation of judgment on this army, and I feel sorry for them. Verse 23 God brings glory to himself through his judgments on Gog. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So verse 23, I'll magnify myself and sanctify myself. That is, set myself apart. It's going to be like what happened in the days of Jehoshaphat. And it says in 2 Chronicles 20, 29. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. That's what people are going to be doing. That's what it was like but then. That's what it's going to be like when God does this miracle of delivering Israel from this huge army. Now, we go into chapter 39, and we'll cover the first eight verses, and this starts to describe and give some more information on what's already been spoken of in chapter 38. So, a good example of this way the Hebrew writers used to write things down and communicate is like in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. So, in Genesis chapter 1, you have a chronological order of the creation account. In Genesis chapter 2, it goes back and it starts to explain in more detail certain aspects of Genesis chapter 1. And this is why the Hebrew writers do it. So in Ezekiel chapter 39, he's adding more detail and giving us more information, emphasizing different things that we need to know more about. And it may not be in chronological order in chapter 39. So, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 39, God causes Gog to attack Israel. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bring you up from the far north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. So, who's the one in charge of this battle? Why is God emphasizing this? Well, God is saying, I'm in charge. Gog, the ruler of Magog from the far north, will be an enemy of God and Israel, but God will be using Gog for his own glory and honor. Now, remember the principle in the Bible? God lifts up the humble but destroys the proud. Gog is proud, and God will have to humble him. Verses 3 through 5, God describes how and where he will defeat Gog. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort 
and to beasts of the field to be devoured, you shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. So in verse 3 it says, Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. So if you're an archer, you hold the bow in your left and pull back with your right. So basically, weapons are only useful if you're holding them or if you're able to use them. Well, Gog and his, and his allies will have no defense against God. Their effort to destroy Israel is going to fail and their weapons will be useless against God's weapons, which is an earthquake, pestilence, hail, flooding rain, fire and brimstone. I mean, how do you fight that, you know? <laughs> Verse 4. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel. So you mentioned this previously. God allows this massive and well-equipped army to actually enter the land of Israel, but only so they could die there. And once again, God turns around a hopeless situation and brings glory to himself. And this is going to cause a largely agnostic Israel, an unbelieving Israel, to start to look to God. Now, I've been to Israel and I've asked some of those agnostic Israelis, hey, do you believe in God? Do you believe the Old Testament stories? Not really. You know, they've got the whole Bible, they've got that history, but they don't really believe it. This is going to cause them to start to think, oh, maybe those old stories are true, you know? So, verse 4, I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field. So, humanly speaking, this army seems undefeatable and invincible. Indeed, it's like too big to fail. But, <laughs> What does God do? He intervenes, and this massive, proud, and well-equipped army becomes nothing more than, you know, animal food. Dog meat. The birds and the dogs and the wild beasts, they have a feast. Verse 6. The attacking nations will not be spared destruction. So, it says, I will send fire on Magog and on those who live securely in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So, God is visiting their own punishment upon themselves, or their own intent upon themselves. They were intent on destroying Israel, so God will return the favor and he'll destroy their own countries. They will not escape. It's fair. It's just. Verses 7 and 8, the purpose of the battle, to make God's name known. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name any more. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Verse 7, it says, So I will make my holy name known to the midst, in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name any more. So, today, Israel is blessed by God, materially, militarily, in many ways. Good agriculture, all those things. But, Israel is very worldly and much like the nations around them. They have the LBGTQ thing going on. They have you know, a lot of atheists there. They're very worldly. They're not holy or set apart to God at all. And so that means, as God's people, they are profaning his holy name. They're causing God's name to be blasphemed. You're the people of God. Look at the way you're behaving. It works the same for the church, too. So Christians 
do likewise when we are not set apart to God, but instead live like the world. So God's desire for Israel is the same as for the church, that we seek him and bring him honor by loving and obeying him, by demonstrating respect for his holy name. Because when we disobey him, we're disrespecting him. It's like children. When they respect their parents, they obey, and they bring honor to their parents. But when they disobey, they're disrespecting, and they bring dishonor to their parents. And verse 7 also says, Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord. So again, like at the time of Israel, it doesn't mean they're going to believe, but at least they would know that, yep, well, God is the only true God. It's like the Philistines in the time of Samuel and Saul. They knew that God was the true God, that God had destroyed the gods of the Egyptians, but they didn't want to submit to him. They refused to submit. So knowing and believing are two different things. Sinful man will often know that God is real, that he is who he says he is, but will refuse to submit. Verse 8, it says, Surely it is coming and it shall be done. This is the purpose of prophecy, to demonstrate that God is outside of time. He knows everything and controls everything. And this proves that he is therefore the only true God. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God. There is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it ever even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. Now, a summary, just to bring everything together before we finish. And what we've covered so far. So, firstly, a leader from the north. This leader's name is Gog. Or a title, a ruler. Who was not an ancient enemy of Israel, will lead a confederation of nations against Israel. He'll be motivated by his own evil plans and pulled by God. It will happen in the latter days, distant from Ezekiel's time, so basically our day, we're living the time when Israel has been brought back into the land. The allied nations will come from every point of the compass, including Persia, that is modern-day Iran, the peoples from the lands of modern Turkey, Libya, Ethiopia, and perhaps Armenia and maybe Germany. Not sure about that one. Gog and his allies will come as a massive, swift, and well-equipped army. Gog will come against Israel when they gather back into the land. Gog will come against Israel when they enjoy considerable safety. Gog will come against Israel when they are prosperous. Other nations will watch and wonder how they might benefit themselves from Gog's conquest of Israel. Yahweh will defend Israel and defeat Gog and thereby glorify himself among the nations. And that was from David Guzik's commentary. I thought it was a good summary, and I thought I'd just read it out to you. So, next time, next week hopefully, God willing, in part two, we'll see the aftermath of the battle, the cleaning up. And there's also a different Gog-Magog battle in Revelation 20. That's not the same battle. So I'm just going to go through and show how they're different as well. And yeah, so let's pray. Thank you, Father, for... The assurance that we can trust you. Lord, your intentions, your motives are always good. Whereas mankind, with our selfish and evil heart, Lord, we're very selfish. Always looking for what we can get. Father, help us to learn the lesson here. Lord, that Israel, even today, is profaning your holy name. 
Lord, I pray that if the one thing we can get from today, that it will be we won't profane your holy name, but we will live holy lives. We will show respect for your holy name as we desire our children to show respect to us and honour our family name. So I just pray, Father, that as we um, talked about in the worship this morning, that we will give our lives to you because you gave your life for us. And we will choose to put you first and trust that whatever happens to us, even if it's from people who have ill motive and they hate us and they're not wanting the best for us, if you allow those people to do things to us, Lord, that it has a good purpose. So we just trust you and pray that you will give us this confidence, Lord, that you are real, you're in control, and that you love us. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.